Do you find sometimes that social anxiety prevents you from really feeling comfortable in social situations? Whether that's dating, whether that's at work, whether it's going out with your friends. Today we're talking about social anxiety, what it is and what some of the things that might help you do something about it. If you'd like to find out more about how to improve your relationships, head over to therelationshipmaze.com, press subscribe right now, and you can also take our free online conflict style quiz, where you can learn about your conflict style in your relationships. Welcome to today's podcast. Today, we're talking about the topic of social anxiety. Yeah, social anxiety. So I have to say, I think a lot of my clients, I would say, particularly in their 20s, um, struggle with um, social anxiety. So what does that mean? So they really find it quite difficult to be in situations with other people. For example, there's a work gig or there's a party or there's a group of friends getting together. Um, they they have this kind of internal dialogue running all of the time that tells them that, oh, you're not interesting enough, nobody wants to listen to you, you don't have anything interesting to say, um, you look a bit, you know, you don't have anything to contribute to this topic. So it's this sort of fear all the time of being judged and being monitored by others in social situations. And it can be really, really, really disabling. It's a terrible experience, social anxiety, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I think a lot of people do experience social anxiety. So mm. it, I think it's the third biggest mental health Mm. A condition mm -hmm. after depression and, and anxiety. Generalized anxiety. Yeah, yeah generalized anxiety. Mm. So, mm. so it affects a huge amount of people at some point in their lives. Mm. And like you said, it can be very disruptive. It can be disruptive uh, in your romantic relationships because it can prevent you going on dates, speaking to people. It can prevent you having that close relationship, which which can also help with your social anxiety. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. Um, it can, you know, it can prevent you from getting a career. It can prevent you from um, studying properly. And I've worked with people and know people who, you know, they, they've struggled at university and even had to give up part of the way through because mm. they couldn't cope with the social anxieties of interacting with all the people. Mm. And, and I think one thing that you said is, is very important with the difference between shyness and social anxiety is sometimes that... Shyness is often defined more about the feeling of feeling nervous mm. or feeling intimidated or, sorry, feeling timid about interacting with others. Mm -hmm. Whereas with so social anxiety, as you said, that's where there's that sense of being observed or judged by other people. So yeah. that fear of doing something, the fear of saying something embarrassing. Yeah, and I think there's a real conundrum here, isn't there, with uh, social anxiety, because as human beings, of course, we're social animals, we are, we are reliant, we are dependent on uh, interactions with other people, you know, if we don't have any contact with others, if you're completely isolated, that's one of the worst experiences that we can have. So for somebody who struggles with social anxiety, they're constantly stuck in this difficulty of, on the one hand, needing the social contact, needing the interaction with others, and on the other hand, feeling really deeply uncomfortable and troubled by these social interactions. They're, so they're kind of stuck somewhere in the middle um, and uh, and they, they don't quite know where to go with it. Um, and they don't 
often have the resources. They don't know quite how can I have um, experiences, social experiences that um, that I experience as positive, as enjoyable. I mean, sometimes they can, having said that. Sometimes clients uh, I've worked with who struggle with social anxiety, they can enjoy it. They can also um, you know, get into the swing of it. They can have positive experiences. But a lot of the time there's, as I say, there's always the critical voice in the background always questioning, you know, am I doing okay here? So there's never quite that sense of ease in this scenario. Yeah, some, I do wonder as well, though, if sometimes it's actually the word social isn't always the most useful mm-hmm. because yeah. you know, we're relational beings and we need connection with yeah. people. Yeah. But sometimes when we think of social, it means somehow to, to many people, I think, is, is sort of engaging in a slightly different way, maybe in a more extrovert way. Mm. Whereas what we want is a relationship. We want connection. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for some people, that connection is just sitting next to somebody with no talking. Mm. You know, that could be the connection. Mm-hmm. That's such a that's such a really uh, important point that you make there, because I also often experience um, with people who present with social anxiety this pressure that they generate internally, that you have that they have to be outgoing, that they have to be extroverts in situations, they have to be loud, they have to be entertaining, they've got to have stories to tell. So there's this desire to be like other people who they witness, who they want to be, who they kind of want to be like, and they're usually extroverts. So very often, I think, with social anxiety, the starting point is often to think about what what do you actually need in terms of connection with someone else? What kind of relationships do you want? And do you really want to be always in a group of 10 people? Or maybe this is a scenario where you're, where you're always going to feel slightly uncomfortable. That's not the kind of contact that you need. Yes, and I think that also links with self-esteem too, is mm. that we start comparing ourselves mm-hmm. with people. So, you know, certainly I remember when I was at school, you'd you'd see groups of people that seemed very popular mm. and they seemed to be very outgoing, maybe more extrovert. And there was that sense that to be popular, you have to be extrovert. And that's what being social is. You have to go and speak to people. You have to be friendly. You have to mm. be engaging. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where sometimes the word social maybe has the wrong connotation because it's, you know, being how you are is what's most important. People like you for who you are. But our society values extroverts, right? Um, Generally, I think this is a difficulty for a lot of introverts. Um, If you are an extrovert, you get uh, rewarded. The louder you, you know, the louder you are, the more you can present yourself, etc., the more you're likely to get an audience. So I think this is a real difficulty um, in our society that somebody who is more on the introvert spectrum is um, likely to be regarded as somehow not being maybe as valuable, something like that. Well, I think it depends on different roles. Yeah. So in some workplaces, extroverts are valued more than others for, mm. yep. for example, communication roles, like sales roles or customer mm. service Whereas introverts are often more uh, valued in sort of roles such as, you know, sort of um, whether it's sort of behind the scenes. Mm. So, you know, some some of these roles wouldn't be so appropriate. And like you said, society often values extroversion in, in some contexts. And I think the problem with social media is that has seemed to increase that value of extroversion. Mm. But I think we all, you know, many people will also experience how when it comes to long lasting, deep relationships, how 
you know, sometimes someone who's an extrovert can can get on your nerves. Yeah, of course. Let's <laughs> <laughs> just just keep talking. Exactly. Like, you think like, oh, I, you know, I wish I could be a bit more of an introvert. So it's like... You know. Absolutely. Or they might not have the same observational skills that somebody with introversion has. Yeah. Yeah, so I think the point really that I was trying to make here is that there's often this um, overlap between... Um, some a person who has social anxiety and a person who is introverted very often they're one and the same so i think it helps to have an understanding first of all what generates um, energy for me is it other people is it the contact with other people or am i drawing more on my internal resources and i need contact of a different type i might just need one-to-one -one contact for example rather than a group of five or six so i think that's a good starting point uh, with uh, social anxiety and uh, the importance of knowing that just having a friendship having relationship with just a few people is just as valid as having lots of friends in yeah. some ways that it can you know it can be better in some ways because mm -hmm. you form that closer relationship mm -hmm. whereas some people who are extroverts who have dozens and dozens of friends those friendship friendships are often more superficial mm -hmm. so i think it's also knowing that sometimes seeing that pressure from other people and thinking I should be more like this comes from that comparison it comes from that self-esteem mm. but it's not necessarily the case yeah so it's learning to feel okay within yourself as well about how you are mm. uh, which I think is really important yeah so listening in what is it that actually drives me what gives me joy what do I enjoy what kind of interaction do I like that's that's always the starting point but then the second point of course with social anxiety is the well the anxiety bit right the the underlying fear here what is it that you experience as so troublesome in social interactions um, and very often that then goes back to this sense of um, not being good enough, of not having enough to offer, not being enjoyable enough for other people, um, not offering good uh, ent entertainment value, for example, something like that. I've often heard that. So back to this kind of critical voice, that kind of very destructive internal voice that tells you that um, you need to up your game, you need to try a bit harder. Um, you need to be more interesting, you need to have more stories to tell, you need to have a more interesting life. What are you doing with your life? That's another thing that often I hear from people with social anxiety. They feel like their life is too boring, they've got nothing to offer, they've got nothing to tell, they've got no stories to tell. So that is, that's the other point, isn't it? Addressing this anxiety, the anxious thoughts that are underlying the, the low self-esteem. I think there, there are the three components with the anxiety, which is, well, yeah, absolutely the thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, but we also have the physiological response. So with anxiety, there's a physiological response. So, you know, our brain takes in the this, this stimulus from outside. And if it sees it as potentially threatening, you know, our body will react. We have physiological reactions. So we get into that fight or flight or freeze response, which we see a lot with social anxiety. Mm. It's a freeze. Yeah, often. freeze. Mm. It could be the flight, though. It could mm. also be moving yeah. away from the situation. Mm. So, you know, in terms of social anxiety, that physiological response, it happens in the body, too. Heart rate goes up. Your hands might sweat. You might notice sort of your breathing going faster. You know, your face might sweat. So it's sort of... And, and then the problem with that is then we have that cognitive response where we start to then see, oh, no, I'm 
my heart's beating faster, my hands are sweating, the other person will see this and we start to then get more anxious mm. because we then, you know, and as you get more anxious, there's more of a physiological response. So there's a physiological response, there's the cognitive and the emotional response. So we have that brain going in, like people aren't going to find me interesting. The emotional response, like where we feel anxious, we feel afraid. Uh, and then there's also the behavioural component, which is we, when we have anxiety, the most natural thing is to tend to avoid or to have some sort of safety behaviour, some sort of ritual that we think we have to do in order to get into that situation. Yeah, because that ties in again, I think we've talked about this before in previous podcasts, that again ties in with shame because very often there is this intense somebody with... Um, Social anxiety is not very shame resistant, they're very shame prone. So they're very likely to experience the flushing cheeks, as you say, going red in the face as being deeply shameful. And the more you're feeling shamed, the more you have to hide away, the more you have to hide away from other people so that they don't see it. And then this vicious cycle sets in. Yeah, absolutely. We so essentially you know we, we notice these responses it makes the whole thought process worse which increases the emotion and mm. the physiological response mm. um and so there's many different ways in terms of uh, how how we overcome this or how we deal with social anxiety and far more than we can talk about in this podcast obviously mm. Mm. but when we talked about the behavioral response you know like i said we tend to avoid those things that we feel are threatening mm -hmm. because that's a natural response mm -hmm. The problem is, the more we avoid something, the more the fear tends to increase, the more the anxiety increases. Exactly. The more we get into these anxious projections, this is what's going to happen. So, yeah, so absolutely. Very often um, the starting point is a behavioral experiment. And the behavioral experiment might be that you're actually exposing yourself more to the very situation that you're trying to avoid in the first place, which seems counterintuitive, of course, but that is the thing that you need to do in order to gain different experiences. Because I think with social anxiety, there's a wrong prediction, isn't there? There's a prediction that something terrible is going to happen, that other people are not going to like me, they find me boring. And the only way to kind of put this to the test is to try it out, um, to actually see, is this true? And of course, your judgment gets clouded in these moments. That's another difficulty. Can I really trust my eyes here? Can I really trust my what I witness, what I actually experience? That that's difficult as well. But um, but if we don't throw ourselves into the situation, we are never able to collect some evidence that uh, might show us that actually it's not as bad as we thought it might be. Yes, yeah, so there's that part which is trying to change that sort of. The cognitions, the mm. thoughts that, you know, that I'm not interesting or that whatever it might be. Mm. Mm. There's also the side with the sort of going into situations and not the biggest situation ever. Yeah. So if you have social anxiety and your biggest fear was going to a party with a thousand people, mm. the thing you wouldn't probably want to do first of all is go into a room full of a thousand people. No. That would be like terror. Yeah. You might start with a room with maybe five people in. Um, and it's learning that, you know, knowing that you're going to have a feeling that's probably uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And however much you want it to go away, it's going to be there. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the process is is knowing that you've learned this response from some things that have happened in the past. So this is a learned response. And, you know, the way that our brains work is we have a negativity bias, which mm -hmm. is... 
you know, for survival, we tend to remember negative things more than positive things. And this is something that's evolved, you know, hundreds of years ago on, you know, out on the wild plains when we had were hunter-gatherers. Mm. You know, anything that's potentially threatening, we immediately remember. Because if we encounter it again, it could be life or death. Mm. So we remember those things. So back at school, if, you know, you stood up in front of your class when you were eight and, you know, maybe some people laughed at you because you, you said the wrong words. That reaction there, your brain remembers. Even if you don't remember specifically, if you can't consciously think of that event, you know, your amygdala in your brain stores that. And as soon as you go into another situation, that part of your brain signals this could be danger. Mm. And you get that fear response going through the body. Mm. And so it's almost letting yourself know that you're going to have this response when you go into that situation. Mm. And although it feels awful, mm. it's not deadly. It's about tolerating it, isn't yeah, so it? It's learning, exactly. Mm. So it's learning to be able to tolerate that response. Mm. Ironically, if you want it to go away, it probably won't. No. But learning to tolerate it, learning to know that you can be in this situation, you can tolerate it. It's not going to kill you. No. And you can start to retrain your brain that actually these situations, although they feel like they might be dangerous, they your brain might have thoughts that they're dangerous. That's just a thought. It's just a feeling, but it's not the reality of a situation. Mm. And over time, it becomes easier to be in those situations. Yes, the more exposure you have to the very situation that uh, terrifies you, the more likely you are to learn over time that actually it's not as terrible as I thought it was. Um, and I think with social situations, this might, I mean, you know, social anxiety, this might take some time. I don't think this is something that um, happens um, overnight. You're not going to become this uh party animal overnight who you know stands on the stage and entertains everyone that's not really the goal here either um but it's difficult it might be quite difficult to gauge it might be quite helpful for you to also um get some feedback maybe it is a possibility if you have had more exposure to kind of hear from other people to ask someone who you can trust well you know how did you experience me this evening you know, did you think that I should have said more? You know, what what were your thoughts? So there might be some some feedback that you can, that you can also gather from these experiences. So we talked about learning to tolerate your feelings, uh, maybe getting some feedback. There's also something about um, challenging. I think this inner critic, this voice um, that tells you, "Oh, you're terrible," because there's often it's almost like. A, when you're in a social situation, you often almost have this kind of split experience. That's what I often hear from clients. So there's a part of them, there's a kind of shell of them, so to speak, uh, which is physically present in the room talking to someone else. And then there's another part of them that which hovers over the whole situation uh, like a helicopter and watches it and does the kind of critical commentary in the background, the sort of sniping, so to speak. That's the kind of voice that then says, oh, oh God, what did I just, what did you say there? That was terrible. Something along those lines. So it's also, I think, part of the issue with social anxiety is learning to have a different relationship with this inner critic, learning to silence this critic or learning to 
uh, laugh at this critic, ridicule this critic, somehow stepping away from it. And there are many techniques that we use uh, in counseling where you might, for example, you might give a name to this critic, um, you might uh, play through your mind of what the critic is saying in a ridiculous voice with a funny accent or something like that. Something that creates a little bit more distance between you and that critic. I think the key word you said there is distance. And 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 one thing, and you know, some of those, those uh, principles I think are really useful. I think one thing I'd maybe be slightly wary of is ridiculing the voice because that voice is part mm. of you as well so sure although we might we might make it sound like sometimes i'll get a client to think of that internal voice of dialogue like a cartoon character like bart simpson mm. the part of that process is is to be able to defuse from that voice so rather than kind of let the voice feel like it's very real is to realize it's just a voice mm-hmm. um one of the challenges i think with kind of ridiculing it is is that it, you're ridicul- if you're doing that when you've got that inner critic, the critic's criticizing you, but if then you make fun of a critic, you're becoming the bully to yourself. That's so a good in a way point. you're kind of undermining <laughs> yeah, yourself at another level. Point, yeah. So I think a lot of these exercises really to get that distance. Mm. So we start to hear, okay, my mind's giving me this voice. I'm getting this voice in my head, like, you know, um, you know, people are gonna find me boring. Mm. I'm just thinking Okay, that's just my mind is giving me that thought because mm. at some point in my past, I've learned that, that that for whatever reason, because the way I've evaluated situations or things people have told me, mm. that you know maybe I'm boring. Mm-hmm. But that's just a learning from the past. And that's just something that comes, it's being conditioned, it comes up in the mind. And I think when we give it a different voice, like right now, if you can think of any internal dialogue and, you know, for example... Oh, I'm, I'm, I'll never, I'll never be successful. I'll never be able to kind of speak to a group of people. When we hear that voice and then give it a different voice, like Mickey Mouse mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. or Bart Simpson, mm-hmm. suddenly you can hear it as like actually it doesn't have that grip on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because absolutely. Because the way that we say it, it it doesn't have that power. Mm-hmm. Usually, when we have that negative voice, it's it's quite powerfully in our minds. It's got that kind of power of it. It feels very very much like part of us Mm. but it's just it's just a learned phrase that keeps popping into your head Mm -hmm. absolutely um so and another i'm just thinking another issue around social anxiety is often that um it's it's often um you become quite egocentric i think uh when you are socially anxious because it's this um sense that the whole world um is paying attention to you that people are paying intense intention to you that people notice every single um, emotion that you might be experiencing that people notice how you might be feeling what you might be thinking that they really watch you very very intently and of course the truth is um, often that most people wouldn't notice they don't know exactly what's going on for you they might not even be that interested particularly you know depending on the social context really that you're in they might not be that interested in you in that much detail anyway. They might not care so much uh, whether you're looking a bit red in the face or not. And no, but actually they're probably more worried about what are you thinking of them. Yes, exactly. So in these situations, either they're just enjoying the conversation or they're thinking, I wonder if they think that I'm interesting enough. Yeah. And I think that's the thing is when you start getting out of your head and thinking about how can I make this other person feel comfortable? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Then we start, we realise that actually maybe this person is feeling mm-hmm. uncomfortable. Maybe this person's feeling anxious. Mm-hmm. How can I show an interest in them? What can I say to them to help them feel comfortable? Yeah. That's and it's getting out of our heads. Because a lot of the time with social anxiety, we get too stuck in our own minds about what's what we think is going on with us or what people are thinking, rather than thinking, you know, maybe this person mm-hmm. is, is concerned about what people think of them. I like that, absolutely. Um, because I, I imagine, particularly if it's a room full with, I mean, if you have 10 or 20 people in the room, chances are there are quite a few other people in the room who feel quite similar to you, who actually don't particularly feel comfortable in this kind of social setting as well. So being other-focused rather than focused on yourself is is a really good way of kind of try to, trying to get away from this intense focus on yourself and preoccup- preoccupation with yourself. Yeah, Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and I think as a general thing, um, and this is with a word of caution as well, I think doing some emotional regulation techniques on mm-hmm. a regular basis, yeah. like learning, uh, learning sort of breathing techniques, learning particularly on focusing on breathing out, because when we get anxious, we tend to inhale more because it's fueling the sympathetic nervous system. So slowing that breath out. Mm-hmm. Um, learning, I think daily, doing some sort of um, in mindfulness, body scan mm-hmm. and being aware of tension in the body, learning to release tension can mm-hmm. perhaps regulate that system. Because again, when, with social anxiety, we may often throughout the day go through this this dysregulation where we constantly go in and out of, mm-hmm. uh, of that zone of comfort. Mm-hmm. So I think so putting that into the day-to-day practice can be useful, but not having to do it when you go out. Because when you have to do your breathing exercise when you have to, you know, do X, Y, or Z before you go to the party, that becomes what's called a safety behavior. And it becomes tied in as a condition for doing that. And that can also get in the way of overcoming anxiety. Mm, I, I agree. Absolutely. It has to be done. It has to be done sort of on, a, on a very regular basis. You have to practice this. You have to practice meditation practices. One that I often recommend um, is Dan Siegel's, Daniel Siegel's Wheel of Awareness practice. If you Google that, you'll find it. Um, it's a fantastic meditation exercise, which, which um, enables you to check in a little bit more with yourself to develop a bit more uh, self-awareness, to get you to think a bit more about, you know, to experience more about what's going on for me. And also to, um, there are different parts to this meditation practice, so it takes a little while. But uh, it's a wonderful exercise that actually is also, if you, is also very connecting. The last bit about this practice is about social connection, actually focusing on social connection. So um, if you um, can make some time, regular time, and it's got to be regular, then really do have a look at this exercise and, and try it. Just 15 minutes every day. Probably needs about 15 minutes to begin with or 20 minutes. But the more you do it, the more you've got it at your fingertips, the more you're, you've got it at the ready. And internally, I think, the stronger you become. Absolutely. So I think that's a good place to finish today. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please tune in again next week and press subscribe right now. Um, And we look forward to speaking with you next time. Take care. Bye.